Hi everyone, it's Saga Ringmar, the producer of the show. Just a note that this episode briefly mentions suicide, so you might want to sit this one out if that's not for you. Did you know that as a Patreon member you get a longer version of this conversation? Head to www.patreon.com slash newvoices and for as little as $1 per month, you can get the extended versions of these episodes. Thanks guys, now on to this week's show. Hello from London. Welcome to the New Voices podcast. I'm your host today, Li Jia Zhang, the New Voices board member. I'm a Chinese-born writer and social commentator now based in the UK. Today, our guest is Tania Brannigan. She writes foreign policy editorials for The Guardian, and she's the author of her recently published book, Red Memory, Thought of the Cultural Revolution, which is the topic of our today's discussion, a fabulous and important work. Tanya served as The Guardian's China correspondent for seven years, starting from 2008. Welcome to our show, Tanya. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, I was so looking forward to chatting with you. I know you are amazingly articulate. I've been to your talks at Bookworms and such places. <laughs> I read your book with great interest because the topic is important, because it is beautifully written, and because I'm interested in it. My own family also suffered. My grandfather committed suicide at the height of the movement, terrified that the politically incorrect background as a grain dealer would make him a target of the Cultural Revolution. So when I first read or heard about your book, I thought it was about the Cultural Revolution. But actually, it is about how the Chinese people were trying to remember it or more likely to forget about it. Could you please give our listeners some idea what the book is about? Yes, as you say, it's very much about how people live with the things that have happened to them, but in particular, how people remember and forget the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there are such wonderful histories out there. Yang Jisheng's The World Turned Upside Down, to take a very recent example, and wonderful, powerful first-hand accounts, of course. So what I wanted to know, I guess every book is a question in a way, and the, the question I had, which led me to write the book, was... What does the Cultural Revolution mean now? How is it that there is this event that's so recent, relatively, that shapes China so profoundly, and yet at the same time is discussed so infrequently mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in such constrained ways, not only because of political repression, although, of course, that's played a huge part, mm -hmm. but also because of the personal traumas, precisely, as you say, so many families who have suffered and people who've lived through it and just feel incapable of addressing it in many cases. Before you go further, could you please tell us something about the Cultural Revolution, and, you know, obviously it was uh, Chairman Mao launched it, and it was described as a political social chaos. And why did Mao launch launched it, and, and what happened? It's, at its heart, it's really two things in one. Mm -hmm. So firstly, it is really a political campaign led by Mao to eradicate all opposition. So because he had launched the Great Leap Forward, this completely hubristic attempt to overhaul Chinese industry 
uh, and agriculture, collectivizing all the agriculture. And it had been such a disaster. It led to tens of millions of people dying. And that meant that Mao had to be reined back by more pragmatic figures in the party. He was very unhappy about that. Um, He was also thinking very much about politics and ideology and culture because he was no longer able to control economic policy in the way that he'd hoped to. And then, of course, he was looking to the Soviet Union. He'd seen how Khrushchev had denounced Stalin posthumously. So he was thinking about his legacy, and undoubtedly. But what was unusual about it, because, of course, he'd launched so many purges and inter-party campaigns before, is that this time he went outside the usual party structures and he turned to the masses to launch this campaign, to get rid of all his opponents, to reassert his political supremacy. Uh, And we're not talking just about the masses, but about very young people, even children in many cases, people in their early teens often. And as soon as you involve the masses in that way, it really grows a life of its own so that it becomes something that not only brings down the top leadership as he wished, but ripples right out through the country. And the result is that you see two million people die, tens of millions of people hounded. Um, In some cases, you see whole families wiped out because they've been judged to be landlord families, so even, even infants being murdered. And it's an extraordinarily brutal period. Starting from 1966. Yes, sorry, starting from 1966. And then even Mao decides that it's gone a little bit too far. He's achieved his aims, essentially. He's got rid of the opposition. And so the Red Guards, these sort of political vigilantes, are kind of reined back in. But we still see a very, very deadly period in which many, many people lose their lives, in which there are these waves of new political campaigns. It's very unclear who's in charge at any one point, a bit beyond Mao, obviously. Um, And people are turning upon each other and you can be up one day and down the next. So although in some ways it's more stable and more bureaucratic, it's still in other ways very unpredictable and certainly many people lose their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, You went to China in um, 2008 as a Guardian's China correspondent. How did that happen? Did you want to go to China yourself or you were just sent on? How much did you know about China? I petitioned to go to China because I didn't I didn't want to be a foreign correspondent per se, but it just seemed to me and still seems to me actually that China was and is the story of our age, really, that something so fundamental was shifting. And then, of course, it's a place with such an extraordinarily rich history and culture. Um, and personally, you know, I'm Thai Chinese on my mum's side. So I I had a strong, I mean, I had an interest in the region anyway, but specifically with China, it just seemed to me that it was the story. Mm -hmm. Now, back on the book, Red Memory is full of interesting characters. One of them is Zhang Hongbing. He sort of feels guilty about his mother's death. He took you to his mother's grave and cried for forgiveness. Could you tell us about Zhang Hongbing? Yes, it's a truly tragic story. He was 17 and he denounced his mother, um, who had turned upon Chairman Mao and made a lot of criticisms. Which, by the way, was not too unusual, right? Well, I mean, it was certainly an era in which people were encouraged to draw a line, as it was called, when family members had been seen to err in some way. So even if they were 
uh, much sort of lesser offences at the time. I mean, it might be sort of a passing remark or a slip of the tongue or something, or or something as simple as you know uh, writing characters, the miswriting a quotation from Mao, which could of course be people could take violent events to at the time. Um, so you saw husbands turning on wives and. Uh, children turning on parents and so forth. Um, in many cases, they were under a lot of pressure to do so. So that often happened when there would be a struggle session and people would be forced to turn upon them. I mean, we've been told, for example, that um, Xi Jinping's mother at one stage denounced Xi in a, a session. And if you didn't, you, of course, would come under attack yourself. So that was not uncommon. What was more uncommon was it for it to be what you might call a spontaneous denunciation. Uh, And in this case, both Zhang Hongbing and his father went to the authorities and told them that his mother had been criticising Chairman Mao, turning upon him, uh, arguing for the rehabilitation of purged leaders and so forth. And as a result, she was, as he says he knew she would be executed just a a few weeks later. And he has had to live with that ever since. So I think for any of us to try and imagine what it must have been like as a 17-year-old to do that and then to live the rest of your life with that knowledge, I just think it's so impossible. It's so Mm. horrifying and it's, it's, it's so impossible to imagine in a way. But I wanted as well to kind of try and understand what lay beneath that. And for him, it's very simply that the indoctrination of the time meant that he didn't see his mother. He says, he di- I didn't see my mother. You know, I saw this monster because she turned on Mao. I didn't see her really as being human. She wasn't my mother anymore. I think I would personally say that when I spoke to him, it seemed to me that there were so many other traumas and distresses that the family had been through because of the Cultural Revolution, precisely, you know, his father had been targeted and had been under attack himself. Then his mother had been under attack. His elder sister had died. She was one of the Red Guards who went traveling in the country in what was known as the Great Link Up and went to one of the big rallies in Beijing and got meningitis and died. And we know that meningitis was spread sort of far and wide by the Great Link Up. So his mother clearly saw the Cultural Revolution in some sense as being to blame. But you can also imagine for this young teenager himself as well, he'd been through this series of losses and and traumas and confusions. And so it's very easy to imagine how how vulnerable he must have been, in a sense. Yes, you presented a very vivid picture. So now he also wanted the authority to recognise his mother's tomb as a kind of historical relic site, right? Yes, yeah. And could you just talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, I mean, that was, it seemed to me, a fairly sort of doomed endeavour. So there's only one cultural revolution site in the country that is recognised as a national heritage site. And that is the cultural revolution graveyard in Chongqing, where many uh, young Red Guards were buried because the factional fighting there was so extreme and pronounced. In the case of his mother's grave, I mean, it was obviously politically sensitive, but also, as we've seen so often in China, his mother's grave was under threat because development was happening at such speed. And so there were all these buildings going up around it Mm -hmm. and it was sort of being hemmed in. And pretty soon it seemed likely that it it might be erased completely. Mm -hmm. And when you think of her 
life story, it's so sort of grim anyway, you know, for this person who'd been a sort of devoted party member, goes through the turmoil of the Cultural Revolution, is executed on the word of her husband and son. Mm -hmm. Then her body gets exhumed because they want to build a bridge and it's in the way. Mm -hmm. And yes, somehow the sort of final indignity of her body perhaps having to be shifted again does seem particularly painful and awful in some way. But of course, in other ways, it's also the story of many victims of the Cultural Revolution that they haven't really been remembered, I suppose. Even now, they're not really remembered. They're not respected, despite all the rehabilitations that went on. And and his mother is one of those who was rehabilitated. Because even while the parties said that it was a catastrophe and it shouldn't have happened, it doesn't want to dwell on all those things. It doesn't want to go into the detail of what happened. No, no. We're going to talk more about that. I interviewed a former Red Guard um, for oral history book, and he just said that he was just following Chairman Mao's order. Do you think that's a kind of a common thread? Other people have done such a thing, just follow the orders. Yes, and I mean, and you know, there is a really important truth in that, of course, which is what distinguishes the Cultural Revolution is not sort of the levels of violence per se, or the fact it was young people even, but the fact that they were really doing it on the Mm -hmm. direction of Mao. So I think it's true in that sense. Whether that's the whole truth, I think, is Mm -hmm. always the question, isn't it? And I think, I suppose it's also true at a deeper level, which is that, I mean, you will understand this better than anyone. It's very hard, I think, for people outside China or perhaps even younger people, very young people in China, to understand what the atmosphere was, the fact that people had been brought up in a culture of struggle brought up with this perpetual sense of the communist miracle, the new China being under threat and of it being your duty to defend it, brought up not only to revere Mao in as if he was a sort of a, a god, the ultimate figure of authority, but also to love him. You know, the idea that the song that Zhang Hongbing talks about where he says they were taught to sing that mother and father are dear, but chairman Mao is dearer. So... I think to be brought up within that culture and then be taught that you're under threat, you know, it, it, it really did profoundly shape people's worldview. And I think there were, as I said, there were so many other things that fed into what people did. It might be personal arguments. It might be grudges that people had or tensions that existed within families. Uh, It might in some cases be ambitions. People kind of wanted to get rid of their bosses. It's fascinating some of the work that's been done on the mass killings, um, for example, which sort of talks about the way that ambition and the wish to sort of move up the bureaucratic ladder actually seems to have played a role in this. So there were so many different things that fed into it. And it's often as well, I think, hard for people to look back and really know what they were thinking at the time. But I think there are certainly some people who perhaps have been able to face up to what they did more fully than others, and to really think about the role that they themselves played. But even those people would say that the culture and the ideology that they were brought up with and surrounded by was critical in the things they did. I was very saddened and touched by the story of a teacher, Bian, and she might be the first victim, but her story was also quite a typical, wasn't it? Could you tell us about her? 
Yes, so she's believed to have been the first victim in Beijing mm. and she was beaten to death by teenage pupils. It's just an absolutely horrifying story mm-hmm. in itself. Um, in a way, as you say, it is actually quite typical of a lot of the cases we saw sort of in the early stages of the Cultural Revolution in particular, where there was this mob violence. And many people, of course, uh, suicided themselves. They were, sort of, they were suicided in some cases, as people put it. So they were definitely forced into suicide, we think, in some cases. There were other people who killed themselves because they'd been persecuted and felt such shame or horror or fear of what was going to happen next. So there were many, many victims. But yes, Teacher Bian was beaten to death by the teenage girls that she taught. Her case also became more symbolic in a sense because the Red Guard leaders who initiated the criticism of the school's leaders, including Bian, then became much more high profile. One of them in particular put a red armband on Mao at his first mass rally for the Red Guards. And that mm-hmm. was really seen as the moment that the Red Guards, who had, who had begun life as this sort of semi-spontaneous grassroots movement, I suppose, had the stamp of, clearly had the stamp of authority. Mm-hmm. They had Mao's approval. So that sent the signal as did his wearing of the armband, as did his army fatigues that he was wearing that day, that sent the signal that this was going to be something very different in which extreme action was not only tolerated, but even encouraged. While only a couple of people had died in Beijing in the run-up to that rally, uh, hundreds die in the weeks that follow in what becomes known as Red August, and then the violence ripples out across the land. Tanya, you interviewed many people for this book, and whose story impressed you most? That is a really difficult question. I mean, I think so many of these stories sat with me in different ways. You know, there are people like Wang Xilin, for example, who's the composer I speak to in the second chapter. He is someone who came very close to dying under persecution in the Cultural Revolution, And he's this extraordinary man who has such a gift for life when you speak to him. He's in his 80s now. He's still composing. He's living life to the full. He's a very passionate person. And from that time, he has managed to draw this kind of willingness or determination to embrace life and live to the full, despite the horrific experiences he went through. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, again, actually talking to the psychotherapists in a very different way. I mean, that also sort of showed me that there are people who are still living with these experiences and it is passing down through families. I mean, that was one of the most striking things to me. And there's no there's no shame in that. You know, it's it's wonderful that Wang Xilin has been able to come out of the horrors of that time and live so fully. but. Th- I mean, one of the things, again, that struck me with him is he sort of says, you know, if somebody shouts his name out on the street, he still sort of shivers, he, he jumps because he it takes him back to waiting 
at, at the struggle sessions waiting for your name to be called, which he said was always even worse, actually, than being beaten, you know, because you were just waiting for that moment that you knew you were going to be next. So even he is very sort of scarred by it. But then talking to psychotherapists about the way that these traumas play out down the generations, even or perhaps especially when families haven't spoken about them, was so moving and so disturbing in some ways. But it did also, again, make me think about the fact that despite the fact that this was an era in which there were so many betrayals, I mean, we spoke earlier about sort of what the worst aspects were. And in a way, I think one of the worst things was the fact that you were expected to turn on those beside you, that so many times it was the denunciations by your friends or your spouse, or that, you know, that, that people who knew you best had the greatest capacity to hurt you. And that's clearly left China a much more suspicious society in many ways. Despite that, the fact that people do manage to build good relationships and and lead lives, however sort of flawed, I I think is remarkable and wonderful and and hopeful. Mm -hmm. Well, among all these people you've interviewed, do you find anything in common? Are they motivated by different things? Yes. I mean, that's one of the interesting questions, isn't it? Why did people start speaking out at that point? I mean, obviously, we sort of saw scar literature in the immediate years after the Cultural Revolution. Um, But that was very often about the suffering people had been through more than what they had done necessarily. And I think there are probably a number of reasons why the period when I was in China was a, a period when people were speaking out. I mean, I think the Internet did make a difference because despite the censorship then people were starting to see stories and actually even in the official you know in state media or in um, official media in some cases you were seeing articles that touched upon these matters that there was a sense that this could be spoken about certainly online people were writing about it people were sharing these stories and that I'm sure made some people feel that they could come forward and also just sort of spurred memories. I think there's age itself, the fact that people often start looking back at what they've done as they get older, the fact that in many cases they were living to or or outliving their victims, which I think psychologically is quite important. I think looking at their children and grandchildren and wondering what to tell them And also a real concern, I think, that the lessons of the Cultural Revolution were being forgotten because people didn't talk about it, suddenly thinking, you know, who is going to keep this memory alive? Who is going to remember what happened? Hasn't been learned. Yes, exactly. Mm. I'm glad that there are such people who are trying to do something to to remember the Cultural Revolution. I have taken many friends, many of them visitors from abroad, to see... Uh, the History Museum in Tiananmen Square, just show them what kind of a history museum it is. It's really incredible, such a you know, cultural revolution, such a monumental event, was condensed, just is condensed to one line. <laughs> and then all this, the other section about the great achievement. And So why the Chinese authorities wish people to forget about the cultural revolution? So there was a time when I think the Cultural Revolution was useful for the authorities in a sense. It, once the Cultural Revolution was over and the gang of Mao had died, the gang of four had been toppled. And particularly once Deng Xiaoping kind of wanted this turn towards the market and towards greater individualism and sort of more personal freedoms at least, it was useful to remind people of how terrible the Cultural Revolution was 
And so we saw this toleration of scar literature initially, uh, and then Dung orders the writing of an official verdict on the Cultural Revolution, which says that it was a catastrophe. And it's useful in turning people towards the market, explaining why uh, the country's leaving the Maoist years behind, because, of course, many people even now are still nostalgic for that time. Um, So there was, was a justification of what was happening. It was also very useful as a way of saying we have to have really tight political control because the Cultural Revolution shows what happens when you let the masses take matters into their own hands. And so we see it's an idea that kind of appears with the 1989 Tiananmen protests, for example. But then again, later, much more recently, uh, 2014, when you had the Hong Kong protests over universal suffrage, for example, Again, we saw one of the very rare references to the Cultural Revolution by the state saying, oh, you know, remember the Cultural Revolution, remember what happens when young people take to the streets. And I think that probably is a genuine fear on the part of party elders in a way, because they can remember these things. Mm -hmm. But it's also been politically very useful. At the same time, because it was a catastrophe wrought by the party, they don't and have never wanted people to spend too much time thinking about it. So it's Mm -hmm. there, but they don't want people to dwell on it or focus on it too much. So even when Dung ordered the verdict to be written, he said the point of doing this is to unite people and help them to look ahead. So that's quite different, clearly, to other historical events we've seen elsewhere in the world where the purpose of sort of writing an official version of events is to say, let's never forget this, let's commemorate this, let's put this down in our history. He's saying, we have to kind of move on now. And I think people have often said as well that it's a sort of um, Mao problem, because Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mao is both Lenin and Stalin in China's terms. You can't do what people often did in the past with regards to the Soviet Union and Russia and say, well, you know, Lenin was fine, and then it all went a bit wrong when Stalin took power. If you turn on Mao, then you really turn on the revolution itself. I, I think that's true, but I think it's also more fundamental in a way, isn't it? Which is that once you allow people to judge past leaders and the party's past actions, you are implicitly granting them the ability or right to judge the party today and the leader's present actions. It's hard to see what the distinction would be. So I think that's also probably why the party sees history as being rather dangerous and treacherous territory. Yes, I agree with you. I actually wrote a a period piece for the New York Times um, quite a few years ago in which I call for an open debate about the Cultural Revolution. I argued that we should remember it, reflect on it and answer some uncomfortable questions. How did the Cultural Revolution happen and why? And why did the majority of the Chinese people participate in the movement, often enthusiastically? Was it inevitable? And what did it say about the Chinese and the national psyche? The Germans did soul-searching after Hitler, and China should do the same. It has not happened, and I I doubt it's going to happen. What do you think? (laughs) It's certainly very hard to see it happening in the near future, isn't it? But I would say that precisely because so many scholars and others have wanted to record, to document, to keep some form of memory alive, 
I wonder if perhaps that's something that might happen in the much longer term, that there may be a reassessment. I mean, one of the striking things now actually is how many young people in China really just have no idea of what the Cultural Revolution was at all. That's really sad, yes. And could you talk a bit about Xi and what he has learned from his experience during the Cultural Revolution? Well, it's fascinating because he and his family clearly suffered greatly. Uh, so the first wave of Red Guards were obviously sort of in the political elite. But then, as you know, it became much more complicated when it became clear that Mao was actually turning on the people at the very top. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Xi's father, like many other top leaders, was disgraced, persecuted, she himself, uh, we understand, was the subject of denunciations. Reportedly, his mother had to denounce him at one point. Um, his elder sister, his half-sister, we believe, killed herself after years of the family's persecution. And then uh, she, like 17 million other teenagers, is sent into this utterly miserable, squalid rural exile for around seven years of his life, living with the peasantry, struggling to survive, really, an extraordinarily grim and lonely time. What's fascinating about this is, firstly, that that rural misery is the one part of the Cultural Revolution that authorities will not only talk about, but even celebrate. So it's become this sort of creation myth where his struggles and his pain are now embraced They're sort of detached from all the causes. People don't talk about why he ended up in the countryside. But they say, look, you know, he worked so hard. He was a man of the people. He talks about it as the moment that made him, that forged him, turned him into the person he was. It gave him this real understanding of life. And it shows how he can struggle. Uh, He understands what it's like to be poor. I mean, it's a very potent story for any national leader and of co- and of course it's true you know so it, but it is extraordinary that he's managed to turn that miserable experience into a kind of redemption story in a sense though it seems that what he learned the lesson he learned was that the chaos ought to be avoided at all cost absolutely yeah so i mean that's the second thing i was about to say to it's to, oh, it's fascinating <laughs> no not at all that that his father was one of the many people who, after their rehabilitation, then tried to collectivise rule at the top of the party and sort of semi-institutionalise it, introducing things like term limits, which he has obviously got rid of for himself, and other mechanisms such as that. He has destroyed the very safeguards that people like his father put in place because of the Cultural Revolution. And as you say, it seems like the lesson they took was you have to control power. We can't afford to have another strong man. You know, power has to be caged to some degree. But the lesson that she seems to have taken is that you need absolute control, definitely no chaos. He's totally unmaoist in that regard. And that you need to be the person in charge and you need to to make sure that you're at the top. Because if you're at the very top and you're unchallenged like Mao, you're the one person who's safe. Mm-hmm. How has the Cultural Revolution impacted on China? Is it still relevant today? I think you touched a little bit. Can you talk a bit more? Yes, I think absolutely. It's so fundamental to the country's transformation. It's really the pivot point, isn't it, between mm-hmm. that era of Maoist uniformity and then this rather ruthless individualism between 
the kind of rigid socialist structures that we saw there and then this rather rapacious equally merciless sort of capitalist frenzy that we've seen since it's a moment that really destroyed so much of the color the culture and arts although some of that has rebounded it's interesting how resilient some of those things proved to be in many ways um but it and it shaped relationships so deeply and people's outlook so deeply. And and one of the reasons I sort of finished where I do speaking to the psychotherapists was that realisation of just how deeply rooted it is in the country's psyche, I think, really. That sense of fragility, of uncertainty, Mm -hmm. uh, the need to survive, the, the danger you can face from those around you. All of those things remain very potent, I think, and perhaps more potent because they're not talked about and not really understood or recognised. Exactly. What do you think is the danger of not remembering the Cultural Revolution? Is it possible that the Cultural Revolution may return in some form? I think certainly not in the form that it did because China is such a different country. It's Although it's changed quite a lot over the last couple of years, certainly it's a much more cynical country. It's a better educated, more cosmopolitan country. Uh, people are more individualistic. You know, I don't think it would happen in that way. But one of the things I wanted people to do really was to look not even just at, at China, but to think about the ways that political power can be wielded and that mob emotion can be whipped up and how dangerous that can be. I mean, it seems to me there are fairly fairly obvious parallels with the Trump (laughs) era, for example. So I would hope that people thought not just about China, just as I hope when they think more sort of personally about the human stories, they think not just about what those people did at the time, but what we are all capable of as human beings. I'm obviously an outsider to China in a sense, but I never just wanted this to be about people kind of looking through a microscope at this country over there. It's it's about humans. It's about people and about what we do in Mm -hmm. difficult and terrible circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then I I think beyond that, clearly there are people within China itself who have drawn the parallel with the China that we see today who see emerging signs of a personality cult, who feel that particularly with COVID, for example, uh, but more generally over the last 10 years or so, we've seen a reinsertion of the state into spheres that it had really retreated from for so many years. So the state is sort of right up close to you again. They see strongman leader at the top with very little constraint uh, upon him. And so... There are certainly people who've drawn the parallel. I mean, if you think of the zero COVID protests and the sign Mm -hmm. somebody held up, which itself was echoing the protester from the um, party congress saying, we want reform, not the cultural revolution. Yeah, exactly. I remember that. Anyway, I'm glad there are such books like yours. I've I've read a few great reviews and richly deserved. And I'm sure um, many of our listeners will find it enjoyable too. Now we're going to talk about self-care tips. Um, do you have any self-care tips? I can go first. I'm a, I'm a big foodie, so I eat a lot. <laughs> so I exercise a lot too. I go to the gym, my leisure center four or five times a week, taking all sorts of uh, classes and spin classes and so. And I swim and do yoga. So what's your self-care regime, Tanya? Get out in the sunshine, see the trees, hug the trees. <laughs> 
<laughs> Listen to the bird song. Yeah, the tree hugger, not a panda hugger. <laughs> Listen to the bird song and embrace nature. It's there all around us. Wonderful. So the next is uh, recommendations. We recommend good books or films we've been reading or uh, watching. I'd like to introduce uh, Salarius and uh, Stalker, both directed by renowned Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. I watched them recently and uh, loved both. Uh, they are they both belong to science fiction type sort of thriller, but the director used this popular form to explore deeper philosophical questions such as what is the meaning of life, what means to be human, and cinematography is just stunning. I I'd highly recommend both. Tanya, what do you got for us? Uh, two books, both by Yoko Ogawa, the Japanese novelist, and both on memory, really. So the first one is The Memory Police, which is this extraordinary allegory of many things, really. Um, a lot of people have seen it as being a political fable because it came out in translation just a couple of years ago. It's a place where not only are things vanishing, but the memories of those things must vanish too. It's dangerous to remember. Um, and it's just an extraordinarily wonderful read. And then because of that, I then went on to read her book, The Housekeeper and the Professor, which is the relationship between a housekeeper and a, a maths professor who has lost his long-term memory entirely. Mm. And it's such a tender and sensitive and thoughtful book. And both of those are just wonderful. Oh, I'll check them out. Thank you for joining us, Tanya, and for such a fascinating, enlightening talk. Greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it's been amazing to see new voices thrive in the way it has. It's just been it's such a brilliant initiative and it's just wonderful to see it doing so well. Thank you so much, Tanya. Oh, thank you so much. That was really fun to do. It's great. You have been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Li Jia Zhang. This episode was produced by Saga Rima and edited by Megan Cattell. Intro and outro music is by April Zhu. Follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices underscore network. Support us activities via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. More information is available on www.patreon.com/newvoices. Until next time, bye for now.